I heard a story recently of a kindergarten teacher that was uh, walking throughout her classroom watching her students uh, color. And as she was walking around, she was trying to notice what each one of the kids was coloring, trying to make it out. And she got to one little girl who was working very intensely. She was hunched over her paper and her tongue was out and she was just going to town and she couldn't quite make out what she was coloring. So she asked her, what is it that you're, you're coloring there? And the girl didn't even look up. She just kept coloring and she said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher kind of looked a little closer, trying to make it out. And she goes, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl, without skipping a beat, said, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> you know, I find that we all have our own picture of God. And I find that most people paint their portrait of God using colors and brushes that they've picked up throughout life. For those of us who have been more blessed, we tend to use brighter colors. To those who have gone through struggles, they tend to use darker colors. Uh, but make no mistake, everybody has a picture of God in their mind, and we all paint that portrait with colors and brushes that we pick up along the way. Uh, let me give you some examples from some students that I've had the privilege of working with throughout the years here at Christ Community. A while back, I was talking with a middle school student who was struggling in his relationship with God. You see, his parents had been through a divorce, and since that divorce, his dad pretty much disappeared. He moved away, and their relationship completely fell apart. Because of that, mom was working two jobs just to make ends meet. And when she came home at the end of a long day of work, she had hardly any, any energy left for him. At school, he had very few friends. And those friends that he did have, he really wasn't comfortable sharing life with. He felt all alone. And to him, if God did exist, he was an absentee parent, too wrapped up in his own stuff to really care about his children. Another student that had been highly involved with Genesis and even serving in our church had come to me every single week and asked for prayer. You see, her parents were fighting more and more lately, and she knew where it was headed. She was worried that it was headed for a divorce. And so she came and she said, Pastor Pete, would you just pray with me every single week that, that God would put my family back together? And so we prayed every single week. But eventually, the inevitable happened, and her parents separated she felt like her prayers never quite got any farther than the ceiling. And to her, God was the, a kind but unhelpful grandfather who cheered her up but really didn't have the power to really change her circumstances. Maybe your view of God is more like one of our high school students who this year alone has dealt with the death of her mother, being rejected by her family, put into foster care, changing schools three times and failing in every single one of them. I remember hearing her story, and as she shared it with me, she concluded with, Pete, I, I think that God hates me. To her, God was an abuse of authority, just waiting to punish her for any little thing. Maybe your view of God is a bit rosier. I remember talking with a college student recently who had life by the tail. It seemed that everything he touched turned to gold. School and grades and sports, his social life, romance, work, you name it, everything was going great. He'd been raised in the church, but he, he walked away from all those habits that he picked up when he was younger. He was kind of living a renegade life. And I was sitting with him to encourage him to kind of return to those habits. But to him, everything was good. He was good with God, and of course God was good with him. If he wasn't, what's up with all the blessings, right? To him, God was kind of like a benevolent uncle always there to grant him his wishes, but expecting very little, if anything at all, in return. 
You see what I'm saying here? Most people paint their picture of God using the colors and brushes they pick up throughout life. But if we let our experiences in life dictate our view of God, we'll always paint the wrong picture of God. However, if we let God dictate our view of God by paying careful attention to his word, we not only paint the right portrait of God, but the rest of life comes into perspective as well. This morning, we're in the final week of our Both And series, where we're looking at the character of God in some amazing combinations. And this morning, we're going to look at John chapter 1, and a God who's both near and far. While you turn there, I want to talk a little bit about what we mean by near and far. Near and far. Theologians use the terms transcendent and imminent to describe as both near and far. Now, transcendent describes a God who is far. He is wholly other holy and perfect, and in every way above and beyond his creation. When we think about a God who is far, a God who is transcendent, we think of qualities like God's omniscience, that he knows everything, he's all-knowing. We think about God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. We think of God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere at all times. We think of God's aseity, That means that he is uncreated. He's independent or eternally self-sufficient. He has no needs outside of himself. We think about God's immutability, that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Theologians call these God's incommunicable attributes because they're, they're attributes, they're qualities that he shares with no one and nothing in all of creation. Nothing can be used to describe anything else in all of creation except for God. And perhaps sometimes it seems like Google. Google can sometimes seem to be omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, right? Now, imminence, on the other hand, describes a God who is near. We think of God's imminence, we think of him as present and knowable, accessible, and intimately involved with his creation. When we think about God as imminent, we oftentimes think of God creating and sustaining everything that's been made. If you've ever walked through the woods or along a beach or through the mountains and you thought, this is amazing. God is amazing. This is is incredible. You were celebrating God's imminence, his creation and sustaining of everything that's been made. We think about God's goodness and provision as we sit down to a, a good meal in our cozy homes and we thank God for those things. We think about his wisdom and guidance as we read scripture and reflect on faith and life. We think about truth and justice as widows, orphans, the poor, and oppressed are cared for through his church. We think about God's kindness and love as we find comfort in prayer and joy in worship and strength in fellowship. We think about God's mercy and grace as we find peace and forgiveness, release through humble confession. You see, most people don't have a problem recognizing God as both transcendent and imminent. We all want a God who's accessible and attentive to our needs, but one that is so powerful that he's able to meet those needs. We all want a God who's so mighty and amazing that we stand before him in awe and wonder, and we all want a God who's so present and familiar that we can trust him with our deepest hurts and pains and concerns. See, the trouble is that when life happens, we allow those experiences to change our perspective on God. And we either overemphasize or underemphasize either transcendence or imminence. If you got a weekly welcome on your way in this morning, I want to encourage you to open that up. There's a chart at the top, and I find this chart to be really helpful at helping us kind of discern where we've got off track in our perspective on God. If we overemphasize transcendence, 
that is that God is far too far above and beyond us, we end up with a God who's inaccessible. He's the absentee parent that doesn't care to pay attention to his children. If we underemphasize transcendence, that God is not quite as awesome as he really is, we end up with a God that's incompetent. He's the kind but unhelpful grandfather who makes us feel good, but really can't do much to change our circumstances or meet our needs. If we overemphasize imminence, that God so identifies with us that he is just like us, we end up with a God who's indulgent. He's that cool, benevolent uncle that loves to bless us but expects nothing in return. We view him as a God who kind of brushes off our sin and takes it lightly. And if we underemphasize imminence, that God is watching but keeping us at arm's length, we end up with a God that's intrusive. He's the abusive authority that's out to get us rather than to understand us or care for us. Let me pause once again and ask that question that we began with. When you think about God, what do you imagine? When you think about God, what do you imagine? Now, John opens his biography of Jesus with a philosophical and a theological declaration that is so beautiful that it's almost poetic, and rightly so, because this declaration, it's about God. Or more appropriately, it's about Jesus Christ, but we'll get there in a little bit. Let's jump into John 1 and read just verses 1 through 5. Here's how John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John begins his introduction here by introducing us to the transcendent word. The transcendent word. And while John packs a lot into these opening lines, I want to call our attention to three things in particular. The first is this. If you recognize those first three words from John 1.1, call out where they come from. Genesis 1. Nice. Genesis 1. You see, these aren't John's words at all. They're actually the opening words of the entire Bible. So if you have a Bible with you or if you're joining us on an app, flip to Genesis 1. We're going to bounce back and forth a few times this morning. We're going to notice a few things. As I said, these are not John's words at all, but they're the very opening words of Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1, the entire Bible, opens with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, before there was anything, there was God. By rooting his introduction in, to, to Jesus in Genesis 1, John is saying this, that God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. You know, as the middle school pastor, I have the privilege of working with students as they enter into early adolescence and some really fun transition periods of life. They're going from being able to, to think concretely to thinking abstractly. And this is for certain a really abstract thought. And so year after year, as I work with middle school students, I get the same questions. The most common questions are questions about sex and the end times and whether or not there'll be sex in the end times. But only slightly less common is this question. Who made God? Where did he come from? According to John, according to Scripture... No one made God. 
He is eternal. No beginning and no end. And it might do us well to read the first four words of Genesis 1-1 together rather than just the first three. In the beginning, God. Period. That's the declaration that Genesis is making. That's the declaration that John is making. God is eternal. God is eternal. And science agrees. Scientists will tell us that there has to be something that's eternal. There has to be an uncaused cause at the beginning of all things. They might call it matter or energy, but the Bible says that that uncaused cause is God himself. John begins by declaring that God is eternal. And he goes on to remind us that God is also omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. He does this through his use of the word, word. Now, history tells us that John was probably writing from and to an audience in Ephesus. Ephesus was a a city in Asia Minor. It was a city steeped in Greek culture, philosophy, and tradition. And so as as John writes those in and around Ephesus, he's writing to a mostly Gentile audience, but many Jews had settled there after being displaced from Israel. So he writes to kind of a mixed audience. And to the Gentile mind and those familiar with Greek philosophy, the word was synonymous with natural law, rational principles which govern the entire universe, kind of like a mother nature principle. But to the Jew and those familiar with Genesis, the word pointed to the reality that the eternal God spoke into existence everything that was made. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Here's how John says it in verse 3. He says, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Theologians use the term ex nihilo to describe this. Ex nihilo means out of nothing or from nothing. In other words, God's word and his word alone is so powerful that when he speaks, things come into existence. He didn't make everything out of something. He simply spoke it into being out of nothing. This past year, my son Eli, who's a seventh grader, had to do a passion project Each student in the sixth grade was asked to pick a subject matter that they were interested in and study it and do a big report on it. And so my son picked magnetic levitation, using magnets to make things levitate and float and even move. And it's pretty cool. But as he got into magnetic levitation, magnetism led him to study gravity, and gravity got into studying things like dark matter and black holes and all sorts of crazy stuff in space, which led to a a big exploration of astrophysics and then quantum physics. And before you know it, he was reading Stephen Hawking and asking me questions about really complicated things. And I'm like, dude, come on, seriously, can't you just ask me where God came from? But along the way, we discovered this thing called the accelerating expansion of the universe. The accelerating expansion of the universe. You see, most of us grew up and went through school learning that the universe was expanding, right? And scientists believed that it was expanding, but that because of the forces of the universe, that expansion was slowing and slowing and slowing. Kind of like this. If I was to take this ball and throw it into the air, eventually gravity would push back on it. It would slow down, stall out, and then come back. So scientists believe that that was kind of what was happening in the universe. The universe was expanding, but it was slowing down. And the weight of the universe, the weight of the nothingness out there, eventually would get so great that it would put, push back on the Big Bang. And the world as we know it would end with a big crunch. And that was it. End of the world as we know it. But in 1998, they discovered that the universe is not slowing down in its expansion. It's actually accelerating. Kind of as if I was to take this ball and throw it up into the air 
And instead of coming back down, it pushed through gravity, through the ceiling, through the sky, and continued to go upward, accelerating faster and faster and faster, not stopping. The accelerating expansion of the universe. Now, rather than get into explanations of things like gravity and black holes and dark matter and all that stuff that my son Eli loves, let me get right to my point. God's word is so powerful that let there be light is pushing out the nothingness exponentially even today. Isn't that a mind-blowing thought? That, that God says, let there be light, and it continues to be obeyed and will continue to be obeyed until God says, stop. That's power. And in fact, although, that, although John probably wasn't an astrophysicist, I have a hunch that this is kind of what he was saying in verse 5. Check out what he says in verse 5. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Nowhere else in all of history is this declaration truer than at creation. When darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, and darkness disappears. Darkness is not the opposite of light. Darkness is the absence of light. When light appears, darkness disappears. Darkness cannot overcome light. Now, for John, this is not just a statement about God's power, that it's creative, but he's also saying that God's power is unparalleled. It's unparalleled. In other words, there is no yin-yang balance to the universe. If you're looking for a dark side to complement the, the force of God, you won't find one. There is no equal opposite. There is no parallel to God's power. God is infinitely more powerful than anything and everything in all of creation because he made it all. Now, in light of that, John's making another statement about God's holiness or goodness. This is the third thing that I'd like you to notice in John's opening. John uses the idea of light and dark throughout his writing to make moral statements, all right? If you flip to John, 1 John 1, 5, John's epistle, he writes these words, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. You see, in John's mind, there is a stark contrast between God and his creation in nature and moral quality. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no comparison whatsoever. And I think that's what's behind John's use of the word overcome, right? That's the Greek word kataleban. And if you have an NIV study Bible or a study Bible with footnotes, you might read down at the bottom there and notice that that word can also be translated understood. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness did not understand it or, could not under, or has not understood it. God's holiness and goodness have no equal. There is no equal opposite. And God is so holy and so good that those who live in darkness, you and me, we can't even begin to understand just how good and holy God is. And that's a good thing. If you think about it this way, if we could fully understand God, if he could fit into my little mind, that's not a God worth believing in, is it? I'm so grateful that we have a God that is completely and in every way far and above us. I'm so grateful that we have a God who's so fully transcendent that he blows my mind. And while God is wholly transcendent, he is not inaccessible. In fact, that's the final statement that John's making by declaring that the light shines in darkness. The transcendent word is also the revealed word. The transcendent word is also the revealed word. For the sake of time, let's skip forward to verses 9 through 13 and find what John has to say regarding the revealed word. 
He writes this, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. While God is invisible and in every other way above and beyond us, he chose to reveal himself to us. The first way that God reveals himself to us is through creation. As theologians call this general revelation. A general revelation describes the evidence of God that, according to verse 9, has been extended to everyone. That light that shines so that everyone can see it. The writer of Psalm 19 says it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out over all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. When we look at creation, creation shouts the existence of our transcendent creator. Dr. Hugh Ross is one of those astrophysicists that Eli and I like to study. He's a Christian, and he heads an organization called Reasons to Believe. And uh, he's written a number of books how uh, all of creation speaks of a creator. But Dr. Ross wasn't always a Christian. You see, he entered into school as somewhat of an atheist. And it was through his studies of astronomy that he began to realize that this universe, this world that we live in, is far too amazing, is far too intricately designed for this to be a matter of, of chance. There had to have been a divine creator behind all of this. And so as he worked his way through school and learned about the universe and, and the sky and the stars and everything out there, he worked his way through scripture and came to the conclusion that there had to have been a God behind it. Here's what he writes in one of his books, Why the Universe Is the Way It Is. He writes this, many conditions necessary for human existence and beneficial to quality of life are also time critical. The fact that these features all converge simultaneously at the moment human beings arrive on the planet defies realistic probability. One favorable time window's alignment with even one other window might be considered an astounding coincidence. But the lineup of so many independent time windows with their brief human moment on the cosmic calendar speaks powerfully of purpose. In other words, it might be reasonable to believe that, that one time window and another time window just happened to line up at just the right moment in the cosmic calendar that, that life was brought into being. Maybe. But the amount of things that had to come together at the precise time when human beings arrived on the planet and so that the conditions were ideal for our survival is way too astounding. It's not a matter of accident. It's not a matter of chance. It's a matter of design. In the field of biology, scientists call this intelligent design. The unique combination of genetic traits and conditions to lead, that lead to the wonderful creations of things like giraffes and hummingbirds and blue whales and bombardier beetles are far too precise to be a matter of random adaptation. When I think about those animals, my favorite is the bombardier beetle because it farts fire. <laughs> it's true. If you don't believe me, YouTube it. I'll leave that discussion for a middle school time, all right? You see, it wasn't enough for God to simply reveal himself through general ways in nature. 
Our transcendent God desires to be known so much so that he's revealed himself also in special ways to certain people at specific times. We call this special revelation. In Genesis 12, God called a guy named Abram. He called him to be the father of a great nation. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants and make them as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashore. And he did. And he brought them to a land that would be their own. And when they faced famine in that land, he led them to plenty in Egypt. But when the Egyptians enslaved them, he raised up a deliverer. And he brought them out through the exodus. And as he led them to the promised land through the wilderness, he provided for them and he protected them and he gave them the law. And he entered into a covenant with them where he promised that they would be his people and he would be their God. And through that law, he clearly defined what they could expect from him and what he expected from them. And as he brought them to the promised land, he settled them there and he defended them and he fought for them and he made them a light to the nations. And as Moses, that deliverer, reflected on all that they had been through, he writes these words in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. He says, See, I have taught you the decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering and take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what other nation is so great as to have their God so near them the way our, the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? See, as Moses reflected on what God had done, he recognized that God's interactions with Israel were unlike anything else in all the world. You see, every other people in the ancient Near East had to guess what their gods expected of them, but not our God. The God of Israel revealed himself perfectly through the law, through the covenants, through his people. And they knew exactly how to approach that transcendent God. And the nations would look at them and think, wow, that's an amazing God. What a blessed people. And I think these are the things that John has in mind when he writes that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. For Israel, the law, the prophets, the scriptures, miraculous deliverance, and even brilliant theophanies at times, that is, God showing up, they were not enough to remind them that God was near, that he was imminently present with them. But in all their disobedience, this did not dissuade God from shining his light for them and to them and through them. No, in spite of Israel's stubbornness, God's light continued to shine in darkness. I love artwork. I love going down to the Art Institute in, in Chicago. Whenever I have a day off and an opportunity, I love that museum. And I love the uh, Renaissance wings and the early European artwork. Um, I love those artists because those artists had a knack for making scripture and theology really come alive. And one of the artists that you'd find in the early European wing is Rembrandt. Now, Rembrandt grew up not quite a believer, and his early artwork is kind of dark and bleak, but somewhere along the way, God got a hold of him. He had an encounter with God, and from that moment on, his artwork radically changed. In fact, Rembrandt is known for his use of light and darkness. 
If you notice some of his artwork, you notice the way that he uses light to declare that God is always shining his light into our world. God is always intervening, the same way that he intervened in Rembrandt's life. And so if you look at Rembrandt's artwork, especially his artwork of of biblical imagery, you're going to notice that light. Works like the sacrifice of Abraham, or the prodigal son, or the storm on the Sea of Galilee. They depict just how God breaks into our world. At the moment when things could not be bleaker, more desperate, God is still shining his light, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And to those who recognize and receive God's illuminating revelation, to those who recognize that light, John writes that he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John works these motifs of light and life and new birth throughout his writing as he unfolds the work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus' description of the work of the Spirit in John 15 and 16. God the Holy Spirit is actively involved in the revelation of God, illuminating his presence and drawing his people, drawing all people to him. We just finished a series in May on the Holy Spirit. If you weren't able to catch that with us, I want to encourage you to go back and and pick that up online. It was an awesome series about the Holy Spirit. But God, the transcendent word, who is also the revealed word through creation and the law and the prophets and miracles and ultimately his Holy Spirit, continues to shine his light into our world. And when things seem dark and bleak, God is still working. He's still revealing himself to us. But God was not content to leave it at that. As we arrive at verse 14 in John 1, we encounter the most amazing, the most profound, the most beautiful and radical proclamations in maybe the entire Bible. Concerning this all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, and holy creator of the universe, John writes this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And with these words, John connects the dots. The transcendent word who has been revealing himself to us from the very beginning is none other than Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, dwelling among us, both transcendent and imminent. Up until now, up until the incarnation, God had been revealed in part. We see parts of God's power and goodness and wisdom and creation. We observe his truth and justice and mercy and grace through the law and the prophets. In part, we remember how his glory caused Moses' face to shine after God passed by him. And we remember how God's glory filled the Holy of Holies in the temple. But that was all in part. But now, because of the incarnation of Christ, the fullness of God's glory has been revealed through the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. In other words, if you want to see God, if you want to know what he's like, look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, we encounter the fullness of God revealed perfectly in a manner that we, as his creation, can not only receive, but also embrace. We encounter a God who so desires to receive and embrace us that he became one of us. So if God ever seems so far, and above, so far above and beyond us that he's inaccessible, look to Jesus and remember that God closed the gap 
by becoming human and joining us in our world. And if life ever becomes so difficult that you're tempted to believe that God is somehow intrusive, punishing or picking on you, look to Jesus and remember that he chose to embrace the full human experience. Hunger and thirst and suffering and pain, loneliness and shame and even death on a cross because of his love for you. And if the idea of God in the flesh ever tempts you to believe that God is our buddy, that he's some way indulgent, desiring only to bless us, or that he takes our sin lightly. Look to Jesus and remember that he died to pay sin's penalty. There on the cross, he took sin so seriously that he stood in our place. And if you're ever tempted to believe that God is somehow subject to his creation, that somehow his hands are tied by some cosmic laws and he's somehow incompetent, unable to accomplish his will, Look to Jesus and remember that it was the very power of God that raised Jesus from the grave and accomplished the full redemption of those who would believe in his name. To those he gave the right to become children of God, adopted by the Father and joint heirs with Jesus. By the very power of God, we are made children of God. God is not inaccessible. He's not intrusive. He's not incompetent. He's not indulgent. He is intimately close. And his desire is to reveal himself to you and to have a relationship with you through the incarnate, crucified, risen, and reigning Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God is not inaccessible, intrusive, indulgent, or incompetent. He is intimately close. And he desires to reveal himself to you and to have a relationship with you through the incarnate, crucified, risen, and reigning Jesus Christ. And that type of relationship begins when we see Jesus for who he truly is. And when we surrender to him as Savior and King of our lives. That surrender is as simple as a prayer. It's a prayer that first begins by acknowledging that God himself has taken on flesh. That he experienced the fullness of humanity that he lived a sinless life and because of that was worthy to go to the cross and pay sin's penalty on our behalf. It's acknowledging that that penalty was accepted by God the Father because God the Father raised him from the dead. And it's acknowledging that through his death on the cross, he offers us forgiveness to be cleansed from sin and be made children of God. That prayer also means that we surrender to Jesus as Savior and King. It means we say, I'm done living life my way. Jesus, I'm living fully for you. And the Bible teaches us that when we surrender to Jesus as Savior and King, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. The all-powerful, transcendent, and sovereign God of the universe becomes our constant companion, our counselor, our comfort, and our strength through life and trial. Through faith in Jesus, we become the very temple of God. We are never alone, and God could not possibly be more near. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, our encounters with God through Scripture become radically different. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Bible in such a way that it's no longer just text on a page, but it's the very voice of God. In Scripture, we encounter Jesus fully revealed. He meets us there and his voice could not possibly be more clear. 
And finally, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are united to Jesus and to one another in the family of God. We become adopted children of God and brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters with one another. That's what's behind this amazing thing that we share this morning called the church. That means that in the flesh, in the darkest seasons of our lives, God ministers to us through us. His light shines in us and through us, and the darkness will not overcome us. So in closing, let me build on the same question I began with, but a little different. When you think of Jesus, how will you respond? When you think of Jesus, how will you respond? If you've never surrendered to Jesus, I want to challenge you to do that today. If you've come to see him in a whole new light, but you've never surrendered him to him as Savior and King, today is the day. There's people in the Welcome Center at every one of our campuses that would love to pray with you and help you begin that intimate relationship with Jesus. And if you're, perhaps you've put your faith in Jesus before, but life's circumstances are just making it really difficult to see Jesus. I want to invite you to come forward and pray this morning. Any one of our campuses, we've got prayer partners that are here that would love to pray with you and bring those concerns to our Savior. And if you're struggling to experience the presence of Jesus daily in your life or even in your time in God's Word, I want to challenge you to jump into a community group because it's through this family of God that God speaks and shows up most often. It's there that God loves to minister to us when we're gathered together with his children, with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a connect table at every single one of our campuses. Stop there on your way out. Ask about a group and jump in because that's the way that God reveals himself to us and, and through us today. And lastly, I want to invite everyone here to respond in worship. In a little bit, the bands at each one of our campuses are going to come out and we're going to sing a, a song. We're going to sing Cornerstone and be reminded just how amazing Jesus is. And as the bands come forward to lead us in worship, the ushers are going to come forward and collect our offerings, our, our gifts. That's just one more way that we say, God, you are amazing. You are awesome. And you are worthy of everything that we have. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we are so grateful that you did not create all of this and just let it go like dominoes. We are so grateful that you are a God who has created all things and through it revealed yourself to us and continued to walk with us and open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to you through your Holy Spirit. Father, we are so grateful for your word that teaches us and helps us understand you. But above all, we are so grateful for Jesus. The penalty that he paid on our behalf and the way that when we look to you, Jesus, we can see fully the goodness of our God, your holiness, and your glory. Father, we pray that today, through what we've encountered in your word, that you'd make us more and more like Jesus, that we'd act more and more like your children, the family of God, and that through us, you'd allow the world to see who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.